And welcome on in, everybody, to the Check Your Brain podcast, wherever you are listening to this, for free on the podcast platforms out there, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, but uh, also I'm on YouTube, Rumble, and I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, and that is my name, Tony Mazur, a nice Polish name. And uh, yes, I am here. I, I talk to a lot of different people on the podcast, a lot of comedians, a lot of um, uh, writers, whether they could be in sports, politics, we talk about culture and everything. But there's there are a few people that I've had on the podcast that I have the opportunity to talk to that have had such a career that's been very versatile, that has had to pivot several times in their career and always seem to come out on top. And it doesn't always work out for everybody, but this guy, I, I think... His career path is so fascinating, and I enjoy it so much for being somebody that has been a name and decided, you know what, let's do this. And it's been a success almost every time he's done something. And that is my guest today, and his name is Eddie Dees. And Eddie, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate this. This is great. It's my pleasure, Tony. I want to open by saying how cool your shirt is. <laughs> oh, thank I'm, you. I'm, yes. I'm colorblind, but it's I can see it's cool blue, bright blue. It is blue. It is a it, it is a White Castle shirt. Uh, we don't have White oh. Castle, unfortunately, in, in Cleveland anymore. But uh, I pine for the days of uh, when I needed a couple of uh, a couple of sliders at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we had we I would get them in L.A. They had them. We didn't get it fresh from the White Castles in New Jersey. Uh, they're they're kind of all around like the Midwest. Yes, I got and them everything. on the East Coast. Yeah, I got them on the East Coast. We didn't have them in LA, but then they started sending them frozen. So I'd get them at the market and I'd uh, you know saw them in the microwave. I love them. There's there's some places that when you move out uh, into a different area that you just got to have. And there's a there's a great story about Drew Carey, that there's a place called I believe it's Antonio's Pizza. It's in Parma, Ohio, which is just up the street from me. And mm -hmm. Drew Carey's from Parma that he had had uh, pizzas and like wings, maybe and pasta in dry uh, like dry frozen and sent all the way out to Los Angeles when he was out there just for it. So sometimes oh. like, when you're from an area and you move out to LA, you move to New York and you don't get that anymore. It's uh, it's great. And, and you're Tell somebody me. who's from, you're, you're from Maryland. So I'm sure there's been something in that area with that by the time you got to LA, you're like, yes. ah, man, I'd love to you're have saying that story. Perfect coincidence. And let me just, just let me tell you this story and let me open with another incredible story from yesterday. But this one just happened today. I swear, because I was in LA and I'm a seized chocolate freak. I love milk chocolate candies. I get these mm. talks. I go all the time. They sell them at the Glendale Galleria. And I would get all one pound box, one third milk chocolate buttercream, one pound, one third milk vanilla buttercream, one pound milk coconut. And they don't have it out here. So I ordered Denise, the lovely lady I'm living with, with Stevie, they're the couple taking care of me. And she ordered me some seized chocolates and I just got them today. So I'm in heaven. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It, yeah. It, isn't that great? Just getting that from your hometown. And yes. you know, there, there's some places you just you would love to have. And, yes, uh, and you, you know what I'm dying for? And Stevie, too, my favorite place in L.A. I miss the most Pink's hot dogs. I wonder if they you can they can ship them out here because I'm a Pink's hot dog. I would eat four at a time. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Well, you know, uh, one of these times I'll be back in L.A. and maybe uh, maybe I'll send you some if you're still on this coast. Let's get the plugs out of the way. I always like to do the sandwich plugs. And you're sure. somebody who's very active on Cameo. And mm -hmm. uh, so if you go to Cameo.com slash Eddie Deezen, D-E-E-Z-E-N. And if you want a personalized message from Eddie, uh, from Eugene, from Greece, or whatever you've seen him in, and we'll talk about that here on this podcast. But if you are interested in getting a Cameo, go to Cameo.com slash Eddie Deezen. You basically... you. For anyone who hasn't done Cameo, you just give them a prompt. You say what couple of things you might want. And uh, yeah, and you just go from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're fun. We do. And we've done them not only in America, but we've got orders from Spain, from Mexico, from Canada, Australia. They're just people all around. They just they're fun. They're great stocking stuff. You know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, holidays, birthdays. Of course, we get happy bar mitzvah. We just got married. Happy anniversary. Anything, you know, I'll say. And they're just they're wonderful. They bring people joy. And I love doing them. So if you want to order them, please, you know, please order. Them. I'll be honest. They're 30 bucks and uh, they're a nice gift. You can have them the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, I, I've done it before for my uh, so three years ago, my wife and I got married and my wife is a big Green Bay Packers fan. So I thought, oh, okay. let's see, this is COVID times. We can't really go on many trips right now. So why not I go on Cameo and I get a Brett Favre? Oh, my God. How much <laughs> so, is he? Um, Let's see. What What's the answer I want to tell you? and What's the answer I would tell her? It was, <laughs> I would guess it, he's 200 bucks uh, north. Yes, it was. We're looking at about 300 bucks. 300 bucks. Yeah. Cause he was Three. great. And he's also in something about Mary. So he was great in that. He, I love Brett Favre. 
That's true. I mean, it, but you know, three hundred dollars for Brett Favre to go. Yeah, hey, uh, you must ha- love your ha- wife very much. Ha- happy uh, wedding. I hope that everything goes great. Or you can pay thirty bucks for Eddie D's, and you get a way yeah. more personalized message. Somebody you could actually get a chance to talk to. So go to again, go to cameo.com/slash Eddie D's, and and uh, so Eddie, I, I just yeah. You know, I can talk about so many different things. I've talked to our our good pal Steve, who uh, again who hooked this uh, interview up, and I thank him for it. Um. I, there's so many different ways I can start this podcast off, but I, I'll start it off in a personal way is that I have a personal connection to Greece because when I was in high school, I was Danny Zuko in my my class play. Mm-hmm. And it was oh, funny okay. because I've I've been so fascinated by the career of John Travolta, who you've said in the past has been very nice to you. But mm-hmm. it's always funny when I do the John Travolta impression. It's always Vinnie Barbarino. Oh, let me hear <laughs> Well, when I was doing it, I'm like, hey, Kanicki, what's with this hunk of junk? That's good. That's a great John Travolta. That's a great one. Uh, you know, stranded at the drive-in. Hey, you know, hey. That's, that's about the, I'm, not, I'm not trying to flatter you. That's about the best John Travolta I've ever heard. That's excellent. <laughs> have you ever met him? I have not. No, I would have you, loved you to. You get a kick out of that. That's your, are, do you do any others? I could do plenty others uh, if I think about it. But it was just funny how I'm on stage as a 17-year-old in high school and I'm doing doing Greece and I'm Danny Zuko. I'm the lead in the play. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a tape somewhere. And my wife has told me, she's like, where is this tape and when can we see it? And I'm like, I don't have access to it. So we're on like this, like Amber Alert to try to find this tape of 2005 Cuyahoga <laughs> no. Heights High School, Greece. <laughs> Danny, did you do that all through the play? Did you do Travolta all through the play like that? Except for the singing. I couldn't do, that's, I couldn't replicate the singing. I'll bet the audience loved it. They enjoyed it, especially in the scene when I'm trying out for the for the track team. And I've got like these really high shorts on very high revealing shorts. How that, did you uh, do that scene on stage? Um, I did it. You know, I had a cigarette and I'm like, hey, you know, I, I, I don't oh. remember. Honestly, I don't. It's been 20 years, so I don't really remember. The John dialogue. trips over the, the thing, the high tie jump thing. You could do that on stage. Oh, yeah. No, I, I wasn't able to do much of that. It was just kind of uh, well, because I, I had to go from I, I'm blanking. It may have been one of the dance scenes. And then we cut ahead to I had to basically strip off and then put tube socks on and put the <laughs> the, the wife beater and everything on for the, the track scene because I'm trying to impress right. Sandy. Um, but uh, yeah, no. But of course, talking to somebody who has been in Greece and uh, it was Eugene. Um, you know, I, you've talked about it many times and it's going on 40, it's actually 45 years this year since Greece came up two days, Tony in two Two days, days, really 45th anniversary. Yes. So how did, well, let's lead up to that scene here because, or let's lead up to the movie because you were somebody again, we're, you're from Cumberland, Maryland, and you graduated high school and basically immediately you got in the next plane head to Los Angeles. How -hmm. did those work from graduating high school to, Hey, in a couple of years, I'm going to be in one of the biggest movies of the decade. It's a miracle. And I I don't know. I've told this story uh, hundreds of times or dozens of times. I don't know if you're a religious person, if you're a religious person, you can take it that way. If you're an atheist, if you're a secularist, you take it that way, take it, say it's a lucky break, but this is the true story. I got an audition for Greece. I had an agent named Regina Penner. She was a terrible agent, but she got me that audition. It was like a big cattle call. I went into the audition room. Well, first of all, I put in, I had like an ice cream suit. I I was previous to Pee Wee Herman. I had a Pee Wee Herman suit. I bought that little bow tie and I, I, which doesn't work for Eugene, but I've got some Vitalis. So, so I made my hair all greasy. I take you the scene, the movie's named Grease, so I'll grease up my hair. But I didn't realize Eugene doesn't have grease. He's a nerd. The T-Birds have grease. Danny Zuko, Kanicki have grease. But I greased up my hair. I remember going in. So I go in. The room surrounded all these guys in leather jackets, T-shirts like Henry Winkler, Fonzie, you know, it was a bunch of Fonzies, Paul Madden, American Graffiti. You know, they were all these tough guys. And they're all these pretty girls with ponytails and poodle skirts, you know, with saddle shoes. I was the only geek there. It was half the beautiful girls, half the macho, handsome guys, and me. I was, I think I was the only nerd there. So anyway, I'm called in. It was Joel Thurman, the casting director, Randall Kleiser, our director, and uh, Alan Carr, our producer. So I auditioned, I, you know, Eugene, I had like three lines, da, 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 da. and I noticed I was auditioning. They were nudging each other. Again, they go, do it again, read it again. And they were nudging each other. So I thought that was a good sign. Anyway, I did the audition. I went home. Day or two later, my agent calls. Oh, they like it. You're in Greece. You're going to play Eugene. So I'm over the moon. You know, I called my mom and dad, my brother and sister, my friends. I'm in this movie with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. It's called Greece, blah, 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 blah. I'm crazy. Anyway, a couple of days later, Paramount calls my agent. They say, Eugene's a small role. Uh, we're going to cut him out of the movie. It's not going to be necessary. So we don't need Eddie anymore. 
So, you know, I'm about to take a gun. My, you know, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. They pulled the rug out from under me. So anyway, my agent's on the phone. She told me the bad news. I'm about to cry, you know, but she goes, look, we're going to go to church and pray. I go, I'm Jewish. I never, but she goes, come on. She comes down. She gets me to church. So the church is still there. It's called our mother of good counsel. It's on Vermont Avenue in uh, Los Angeles doing a visit. It's on Vermont and off Hollywood Boulevard. Our mother of good counsel is a great church. But anyway, we went in there. She goes, we're going to go in and light a candle. What? She goes, you light a candle. You know, this is Goyam to me. I don't know. So we go in. My agent and I light a candle. And she goes, say a prayer. And we, we both said a prayer. And I prayed, you know, things, good things would happen. Something good would happen. Anyway, about three days later, Tony, I swear to God, she called me. She goes, guess what? Paramount called. They want you back in Greece. So that's a true story. So again, religious people go, oh, there's an angel watching over you. It's religious. Secular people say it's a coincidence. You're the luckiest guy in the world. You got a lucky break. So you can view it however you want. You know, the answer is metaphysical or whatever. But that story happened. That's how I got in Greece. Well, I mean, it's so fascinating because you were somebody that, like I said, that you flew out to California because you wanted to be a comedian. And yes. you were at the comedy store during the mm -hmm. beginning of what ended up being the comedy boom of the 80s. Exactly. But you were there at the beginning. So Sammy Shore takes over uh, right. and the comedy store. And Mitzi, they used to be the old Ciro's back in the 40s. Yeah, so yeah, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were there. Exactly right. That, it was historic, and you're exactly right. The big comics at the time, like, there were three. At that time, it was Gabe Kaplan, Welcome Back, Cotter, Jimmy yep. Walker, Good Times. And um, who was the third? There were there were three big comics. Oh, Freddie Prinz, tragically. Freddie Prinz, you know, hadn't passed away yet. So there was, those were the three big comics. Yeah, Freddie Prinz sadly died before I got Greece, but he died early 77. I got Greece a few months later. But when I came to Hollywood, those were the big three. Ciro's... Well, well, I was going to say about Ciro's, it's interesting because I know you're a you love old Hollywood. Uh, there oh, was yeah. a there was 1941 and uh, no pun intended because you were in that movie as well. Yes. Uh, yes. But 1941, there was a Looney Tunes cartoon. I think you know about this. It's called Hollywood Steps Out. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. The Marx Brothers. Yeah, was, I love they, that. They that's showed all of them. Everybody yeah, who was the, big at that time. Yeah, that's a Tex Avery. Isn't it? Is that Tex Avery? I believe it is Tex yeah, Avery. Tex yes. Avery you know, my favorite cartoonist, genius. And yeah, that's a great one with Groucho and Harpo. Now, you notice the Groucho voice doesn't sound anything like Groucho. I always wonder, why didn't they get a better guy to imitate Groucho? The guy doesn't sound like Groucho at all. But it's, yeah, it's a great with Clark Gable dancing. I remember that one. I forgot it's, who there was. a. There, I, I'm blanking as somebody's probably yelling at me when they're listening to this. But there was a, a young voice actor who did many of those voices who died, oh, really? in a, who died in a plane crash not long after who was going to be the next Mel Blank. Why, why didn't they just use Mel Blanc? I always wonder, why didn't they I use I think him? they did. I think that's, they used him. I'm going to look it up as I do this, but it was for Hollywood Steps Out. And it, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was it was fascinating because it was a young, like 20-year-old actor. And it was during, obviously, 1941 and World War II. And it was a training oh. mission down in, I believe, Pensacola, Florida, that he uh -huh. ended up dying. But he was very young and he was going oh, to be the next story. of the great voice actors. Oh, let me know who that's. I'd like to read about him on Google. I'd, I'd like to Google that. I, I never heard that story, Tony. That's so sad. And it, it, if it wasn't for him, I mean, you think of June Foray, you think of Mel Blanc and everything. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah it was uh, it was fascinating. But uh, yeah. but Ciro's became the comedy store. And by the 1970s, you had 1972 when Johnny Carson moved to Burbank. Mm -hmm. And then he's bringing mm -hmm. up, like you said, Freddie Prince, Steve Landisberg, uh, Jimmy Walker. Jimmy Walker, one of the few place people to do both the comedy store and the uh, the improv down the street. OK. And you were up wanting to be a part of that. Now, what got you wanting to do comedy and what made you kind of humble yourself and say, mm, maybe I'm not maybe this isn't for me? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to be comedian from a great philosopher said we've developed our basic purpose in life from the age of two. We've all established it. And from the age of the earliest ages, I was always doing crazy, funny things. And I always wanted to make people laugh. My earliest days, I was always getting in trouble in school, even in kindergarten. They'd separate me from the other kids in kindergarten. Eddie, go sit on the steps. I was like four years old. I'd cause trouble, sit on the steps. School, the first grade. I was so crazy. And I, I was wound up, hyperactive. In first grade, my first grade teacher would tie me in my chair with a jump rope. Miss Smith, she tied me in my chair with a jump rope. Uh, I used to get detention all the time, staying after school. Uh, I was suspended a couple of times and I was always to get laughs. But um, I wanted to do that. And the, the first way I went out, I was so, this is how naive I was, Tony. I came out to Hollywood and I started calling the studios. I look up at the Paramount Studios and I call, I go, hi, do you need a good comedian? 
And I call it the universe. <laughs> and it's amazing. None of these women hung up on me. The secretaries were always gracious. I remember one was really empathetic. Uh, she goes, honey, you have to get an agent and blah, blah, blah. But I, I was that night, but they could call them and they call me and, you know, oh, we're going to put you in a movie. You want to be in a movie? Sure. I, I thought it was that easy. That's how green, I was as green as a line, you know. So that's how I started. And then uh, the first avenue was stand-up comedy. I could, obviously couldn't get in the movies. The gong show I did later that year, that's my TV debut. I'll talk to you about that later. But I was, I came to L.A., in June of 75, my comedy store debut was January of 76. So it was only a few months. I did a routine. I had it on uh, index cards. I wrote down, even in those days, I had a hard time remembering lines. So I read my whole thing, go, here he is, Eddie D's at the Plaza, Plaza, Plaza. Sure, but will you respect me in the morning? That was my opening joke, Tony. So that was the lapse. And then it was, uh, I tell all my jokes and I did good. The first two times in LA, I got good applause. And Mitzi said, oh, you're very funny. Why don't you go to the comedy store in Westwood? We're going to move you. So I went to Westwood. I flopped. I totally bombed. And I just stopped doing it. I go, you know what? I don't like doing this. So it was hard on me. I wasn't comfortable. I knew movies in my heart. So I knew I wanted to get into movies. And then I pulled in Greece a year, uh, a little over a year later with that story. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because like I, I so I do stand up comedy as well. And okay. do you, you enjoy it? Uh, I enjoyed it years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy it as much with me doing podcasting and everything. And that was the one thing about getting on stage, hearing your voice and you want to hear your voice and you want to establish your voice. Mm-hmm. Well, if you do podcasting and I, and I did 15 years of radio as well, I hear my voice every day four to five hours a day, five days a week. I'm tired of my voice. It was one oh, okay. of those cases where, right. but, but there is, but when you say a voice, you start to hear it, but what is your voice comedically? And mm-hmm. does your comedic voice, when you go on stage, does that represent who you are? Or are you doing mm-hmm. a caricature of yourself? Or are you doing right. somebody that is nowhere close to yourself? Like Andrew Dice Clay was a perfect example of that where Andrew Silverman was not, Andrew Dice Clay. That was Andrew Dice Clay, the character that we saw on stage and that you saw probably firsthand at the comedy store mm-hmm. was uh, Buddy Love, which was uh, Jerry Lewis and Nutty Professor, the original. Right. I and, remember that. He does a great one. And it just it that's what that character became because he did the Jerry Lewis, the, the nerdy one. He did the mm-hmm. Jerry Lewis in. And I know you're a big uh, Jerry Lewis fan as well. Oh, yeah. he did Jerry Lewis and the Aaron boy and Jerry Lewis and Cinderfella and everything. So yeah. that was I've one of his characters. Professor. That's the only thing I saw Andrew do there. I've never met Andrew, but he, he's a fascinating guy. Very talented. It's I mean, and he did a lot of those. And like in those days, in the late 70s, early 80s, you wanted to break into comedy. You did a lot of sitcoms, but you mm-hmm. had kind of tapped yourself out when it came to comedy and you got into doing a lot of some TV, but eventually movies. And I wanted to ask you about 1941, for sure. example. And if you're watching on the video, I have to put this up there yeah. for you. You and yeah. Murray Hamilton. How great is this? You and Me, Murray, Murray and Hamilton. M- Murray, did you ask about I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, it, it's such a great photo. If you're Again, if you're oh, watching on the you. YouTube right now, yeah. you and yeah. Murray Hamilton in 1941. And yeah. how, uh, uh, let's talk about 1941 because it's a movie that, looking back, is it a classic? Is it one where people are going to look back at Steven Spielberg's full work and say that now that movie stands out? Maybe not, but there's a lot of interesting moments and great cameos and a great cast to that movie as oh, well. Absolutely. That keeps it going. Absolutely. So many stories about 1941. Stephen was a wonderful director, super nice guy. John Belushi, I loved. The nice guy, Dan Aykroyd, I loved. John Candy, I loved. I loved everybody in the cast. And by the way, to, to interject this, I don't want to, you can cut this out or I always want to put on your show. I want to send my love to Treat Williams, who was a super nice guy. Yes. God bless him. And my love goes to his family and kids. Uh, I didn't know him real well. I, I only talked to him one time. We interchanged only once, but he was always a nice guy in the Senate. He was very talented. It was a horrible tragedy. But anyway, getting back to 1941, my best 1941 story. Okay, I'll tell you, Tony. I was on the Ferris wheel and I spent the whole film pretty much on the Ferris wheel. It was me, Marie, and my dummy. So the I don't know if you, have you seen 1941? It's, it's been years, but yes. Okay, one of the big climactic scenes is they shoot down our Ferris wheel and we roll off it into the pier. So to do that, of course, it's fake with miniatures. They use a miniature Ferris wheel, but they also had to shoot me and Murray going around. Ah, you know, <laughs> and Stephen was whipping us around real fast. Now I get bad motion sickness. So I started to feel nauseous. I go, Stephen, can you please stop? So he stopped the Ferris wheel. He was whipping us around for, you know, four or five minutes. I was really nauseous. I come down and they pull me out. I go, Stephen, I feel really nauseous, please. He goes, look, lay down in my dressing room. 
So we had his beautiful secretary. I remember this day. She was so beautiful. She took me by the arm. She took me down, laid me down in Stephen's cot in his dressing room. She closed the door. So I'm laying down in bed, you know, dying. Then I start to feel really nauseous. I knew I had to throw up. So I crawl on my hands and knees in the Spielberg's bathroom. I threw up, Tony. Blah, I threw up in Stephen's toilet. And I realized the significance. I just threw up in Steven Spielberg's toilet. <laughs> One of the highlights of my life, highlights of my career. That was my biggest moment. Steven Spielberg's toilet had Eddie D's and yes. puke in it. I mean, yeah. look, I, I know, I know we want to sell things on eBay nowadays and autograph <laughs> pictures and stuff like that, but can we find yes. that toilet? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, you want to hear trivia? I'm the only ha- actor in Hollywood history. I threw up in three of my first four movies. I threw up in Greece, my last day in Greece. Okay. We're doing the carnival scene. You know, that's my big scene. I get hit in the face with a pie. That's my big scene in Greece. But later on, my last bit was the director came up to me and Alan Carr, the producer, came up to me, the director of Classic, Eddie, will you get on the twirling machine, whatever it's called in the carnival? You know, it's a machine where you stand up, they strap you in, they spin you around. So they go, Eddie, will you do a shot of that? We'll just get an establishing shot there. I go, please don't. I get bad motion sickness. I didn't want to. But it's my first film. I couldn't talk back. So I conceded to do it. They strapped me in the machine. They whipped me around, you know, just like that. I got off the machine. I'm woozy. I, Tony, I wobbled out to the middle of a pasture. There was like a big a pasture. There was nobody there. And I heaved up in the middle of the pasture. This is August 2nd, 1977. That was my last day on Greece. I threw up. Anyway, my last day, I, we can get to this too. I did a movie called I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was my third film. Yep. This is the first film Steven Spielberg ever produced and was the first film ever directed by Bob Zemeckis, who later did The Polar Express. But anyway, the last day when we wrapped, Bob gave me a cigar as a gift, you know, a parting gift, you know, good luck. And I didn't know cigars. I never smoked one. I didn't know about cigars. You're not supposed to inhale. Oh, yeah. So I was real full. I go home and started puffing it. I inhaled the whole thing down. Again, I feel nauseous and woozy. I went to my toilet and threw up. So I threw up three of my first four films. That ought to gross your fans out, Tony. I, I, I would say that, but there's a lot of people probably nervous. They're probably like, wait, you, only three films you threw up? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, my critics that throw up. Why yeah, say, well, exactly. Yeah, well, yes. I have to ask you about something. I was looking at your credits and I I have to bring something up that I I thought was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life Mm -hmm. was a movie that you were in or partially in. And apparently you got cut out or whatever called a Polish vampire in Burbank. (laughs) That's the low point. The, the (laughs) nadir of my career. I think it's the worst thing I've did. And now I, I, I don't hardly remember. I think I saw it once. It was, I did it as a favor for a friend. His name was Scott. Something was the director. He was a nice guy. And I did it as a favor. It might even have been non-union. I was taking risks because if you go non-union with SAG, you know, you're in trouble. But I did it as a favor. And then he wouldn't give me a ride home. So we got into a big fight and I, I walked off the movie because <laughs> I, I, I was, wasn't under contract. But it was a low budget thing. And uh, I got he made have slip me a couple hundred dollars. I don't know. This is back in like 1985 or something. Uh, yeah, that's about it. I, I don't hardly remember it. I, I, yeah, I don't hardly remember it. I, I looked it up and it said uh-huh. that you played a character named Sphincter. Sphincter. Okay. Gotcha. And when uh, they, you were out of the movie, like you, you pulled out or whatever. And then yeah, they I replaced. The I wasn't under contract and he wouldn't give me a ride home. So, and then he was, Oh, wait, didn't you ride home. Don't worry. And I go, no, you didn't give me a ride home. I did all these favors. And we got into a fight. Now we're friends. Now I've seen him at signing shows. His name is Scott. He's a, he's a nice guy, but I got mad at him there. Cause he didn't give me a ride home. But it, like, I guess you had gotten cut out of the movie. And what they did is they kept your parts in the movie, but used it right. as a flashback. Yeah. <laughs> I've never plan heard of that. They did a plan nine from outer space. They kind of, it was or like, <laughs> remember when Shemp died, they got a fake Shemp. So yes. I did like, I think that one day and I think they, yeah, they filled me in. I don't know how they did it, but they mixed me in somehow. I don't know. I, I actually wouldn't mind seeing it again. Yeah, why not? Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you could probably watch it if they haven't played it on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, yeah. Like I watch, <laughs> Stevie and I watch all my old movies here. You know, he can get them all on cable. Credit. And I, I pretty much, I haven't cringed at any of them. I saw Muggsy's Girls. We saw Laser Blast. The Mystery Science Theater Laser Blast is hilarious. You know, and we've seen some of my old stuff. And it's funny. I watched I Want to Hold Your Hand. And it's fun to do it, you know, relive them. Yeah. We were just talking today. I did one called Desperate Moves. It, you, there was a big skating fad in the early 80s. And yep. uh, I did it and I met my ex-wife there on that film. It's called Desperate Moves. And I did that movie there. I see he's trying to get it so we can watch that one. There was a weird, yeah, that skating phase that was going on. Like, yeah, uh, remember that was happening. Yeah. It, well, it was a little, little before I was born in 88. So uh, it was okay. a little before my time, but okay. uh, 
I just remember a lot of those and they kind of went back into that, that Ashman, but you're a part of that. And it's a weird culture that is kind of coming back a little bit. I've noticed that teen sex culture, <laughs> teen oh, sex yeah. movies, and yeah. they're kind of recreating them. albeit heavily sanitized. It's not the days of Porky and Porky's anymore, even American mm-hmm. pie, but the, there's something in our culture that they're like, let's just go back to the well. Let's watch those old movies. Those, those are mm-hmm. great. Yeah, yeah, it's nostalgic. A lot of people are unhappy with the world. So many, you know, just go to Facebook. There's a lot of happy people. So yeah, maybe <laughs> so, trying to grab nostalgia. That, I think that's one of the things about Grease, definitely. Grease is a feel-good movie. Why do people like Grease so much? It makes you feel good. Stevie and I watched it maybe like a couple months ago, six weeks ago, and I, I was a little down and I watched it and I felt so happy and bright. It just, the you can't help but be cheered up by that music. You know, we, it was like a love fest. We all loved each other, yeah. Now, was that a happy set? Because I've heard yeah. some movies that yeah. are like a, like a big, big production and people love mm-hmm. them. And then when you talk to some actors on the set, they're like, yeah, I may have seen like it. But uh, remember, it, it is acting after all. Yeah. But you, you seem to really enjoy yourself on it. Yes, absolutely. The happiest set ever. I've never uh, well, I've never really been on a non-happy set. I never remember. I've seen some people quarrel on sets. They didn't get along other actors and such and such. And I didn't get along with one director, that's all. I don't know if you want to get into that, but it's always been absent. But Greece was extraordinarily happy. I always get asked, Tony, they go, what was Greece like? That's the question I get most asked. And I go, remember the greatest part of your life, the best party ever where everybody just had a blast and everybody's getting along and you just didn't want it to ever end. And I go, imagine that party lasting for two months. And I go, that's what Greece was like. That's what it felt like. Every day you were going to set, it was like you're going to a great party. Boy, is that, I mean, you'll watch that nowadays. And again, with me being being in it and I, I had seen it and had the soundtrack and, and everything and even heard things by the way in the soundtrack that aren't in the movie but they're actually in the plays that that mm-hmm. i had to sing along to and i'm like i have no recollection of this because it's not in the movie but yeah. uh it is it, it's one of those things where back in the 70s well like we love nostalgia as our culture and in the 70s we love the 50s and into the 80s right. and then like nowadays everything is all 80s and 90s stuff like mm-hmm. we're like oh it wasn't the 90s great and i'm like well, I remember the 90s and I remember in the 90s, we pined for the 70s. <laughs> it's just yeah, everything's absolutely. like a 20-year cycle now. Yeah, and when I came out early in the, in the 70s, you're right, we were pining for the 50s. It was all Fonzie. That was a big deal, you know. American graffiti, course, yeah. Side, the last day of Greece, you know, was August 16th, 1977. That's the scene with the, uh, the, the pillow party, you know, the pillow sleepover, stalkers there. And, you know, she sings of the Elvis poster. Elvis, yes. get your filthy paws off me. That day was the last day of filming on Greece. That was the last scene they shot. And that was the day Elvis Presley died. Really? Yeah, it's a, it's a Ripley's Believe It or Not, but it's a true story. Elvis died. And in L.A., I see, I finished the film on the second. But I remember in L.A., there was a huge downpour rain. It doesn't rain that much in L.A. But the day Elvis died, there was a downpour. It was like a flood of rain. It was almost like he caused it or God did it. In 19, it was August 1977. And that's when, uh, and, and I know you know this because you're a Marx Brothers fan, because Groucho yeah. passed away three days later. Yes, exactly. And he got overshadowed. And I've talked to so many Marx Brothers fans who are still pissed off about that. They go, Groucho's, you know, the greatest comedian that ever lived. But, you know, Elvis was like beyond anybody. Elvis is bigger than the president. Elvis is like God level. And it was all Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. So Groucho is a little overlooked. It's, it's sad that happened that way. But, but Groucho's an immortal too. Well, they, they always said that Groucho is the only time he ever had bad timing. Oh, very good. Yeah, very good. Steve, True. Steve Stolier, I, I've had him on my podcast. Yeah, and isn't he great? Super he, nice guy. He, excellent. And he went, yeah. and for folks who don't know, Steve Stolier worked with Groucho as his assistant for about three years with Aaron, the infamous and notorious Aaron Fleming. Yeah. And uh, worked from 77 or 74 to 77. And uh, it was one of those when Groucho ended up dying back in 77 with uh, a couple of days after Elvis. I think it was like Dick Cavett and Woody Allen wrote to the newspapers by saying, you know, there are other kings who died this week as well. Oh, that's yeah, that's very touching. Yeah, it's too bad. I'll tell you my I'll tell you my Steve Stolier, how we're weirdly connected. This is six degrees of Kevin Bacon. But I'll tell you a story that shaped my life. This is a story that changed my life. My life was changed Tony, over one dollar, over one dollar. But anyway, we went through. Uh, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a comedian. This is, I graduated from high school at 75. So I knew I was getting my career ready. I go, you know, I'm in Maryland. I'm going to go to New York and establish my career. So the family went on vacation in New York the summer of 74. 
I'm going to, you know, I'm going to graduate my graduation. My last senior year was the next year. So I go to New York. It was exhilarating. You know, the magic in New York, you know, the great restaurants, the sites, you know, it's just New York, you come alive. You can't help but be caught up in it. And I was having a ball, great time. I went to see Animal Crackers. Steve Stolier got it re-released and I went to see it four yep. days in a row. I went to the Rialto Theater four days in a row and saw it. I was in heaven. So anyway, I was the happiest guy. I go, I'm going to come to New York. I'm going to be a comedian. Da, 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 da. So anyway, I'm walking down the street. I, I go, I'm always with my family. So I feel in my oats. I say to mom, dad, I go, I'm going to go out for a walk. So I went out for a walk in the night alone. I was like 17. I probably weighed like about 111 pounds. I was a skinny galoose. So I'm walking down the street. This guy stops me on the street. He goes, hey, can you give me a dollar for change? I go, all right. I don't know any better. You know, there were no hustlers. Where I grew up in Cumberland, Maryland, I didn't know what a hustler was. So I give him a dollar and I give the guy a dollar bill. So the guy stands there. I go, where's my change? He goes, what do you mean? You didn't give me no dollar. I go, yes, I did. I gave you a dollar, mister. Where's my change? He goes, you didn't give me no dollar. Finally, it dawns on me, you know, it dawns on me, I'm being hustled. This guy's a, a con artist. He's a criminal. I started to feel a little woozy. My knees are starting to buckle, you know. I didn't, this guy's a big, you know, a tough guy, like Mike Mazurki, you know. I couldn't, obviously, I can't fight him. So I knew the guy's got my dollar. It's only a dollar, but I've never been conned or cheated like that in my life. I trusted humanity. He broke my trust in humanity. Anyway, to that, that day, Tony, I came back and I resolved to go, New York sucks. It's a crap hole. I go, I am never coming back to New York to start my career. And that changed my life. If that guy hadn't taken that dollar, I would have gone to New York. I would have never got Greece. I would probably have never made a movie. I probably would have been a fair. I would have probably come on back home. I would have run a Dairy Queen in Cumberland, Maryland. So that guy, that schmuck changed my life for that $1. I don't, he might still be alive. I don't know. I never found out who he is. I don't know if he ever know, found out who I was. And you come to find out it was Bud Abbott. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who gave yeah, that you the dollar? Who's on first? Well, that, that, that was one of those. Uh, well, getting getting. I wanted to ask you about Marx Brothers because you said sure. Animal Crackers, and yes. what I found interesting about Animal Crackers and the Marx Brothers in general by you by the time you got to the baby boomer generation is it was not. You know, obviously, some of the movies like Go West and uh, At the Circus and right. Night in Casablanca, they're like, yeah. They're not Room great movies. No, no. And, and I but, think yeah, if you ask... Like they say, as Marx Brothers fans say, any Marx Brothers is better than anybody else. It's like the Beatles. The Beatles had some dog song, but any Beatles song is better than any other group's best stuff. And the same with the Marx Brothers. Just to see the Marx Brothers is a thrill, but I totally understand what you're saying. Room service is really bad. Some mm -hmm. of those are really love happy. You know, it's I love Harpo, Oof. but it, it's not that great of a movie. <laughs> but, but you're seeing the Marx Brothers, you know. Well, I mean, I'm a Zeppo guy. I, I love the fact, even though Zeppo <laughs> doesn't, bring a ton it's the fact that i would rather have the four marx brothers there than yes. the three and then like some yes. ensemble to try to keep a movie yes. together so right. zeppo gave their best balance to them because groucho and chico or i'm sorry harpo and chico always paired off you know they were always like brothers and in real life they were like <laughs> they like to gamble and screw around and groucho was always alone the studious one reading books and zeppo gave it balance. he gave groucho a guy to view so it usually paired off it was always Chico and Harpo, Groucho and Zeppo. And he gave the team a balance. It's kind of like the Three Stooges. Larry is obviously the lesser. Mo was the leader. He was important. He's the boss. Curly is the genius. But you needed Larry kind of gave him a balance. If it was Mo and Curly, it probably wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. I Well, I agree with that. I, well, I, I could talk about Stooges here and uh, just like for the rest of the podcast if I need to. Yeah. Like same here. Marx Brothers, like I think you're in agreement where we look at Night at the Opera and Day at the Races as – I think if you're kind of a casual Marx Brothers fan, you think those are the pinnacle of the Marx Brothers when I think you and I believe that's about the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The five at Paramount are the best, no question. I, Night at the Opera is a beautiful, great film. Now, it started going on where Day at the Races was a great comedy. They were all great. First of all, I'll tell you a weird observation, but I'll just let me get this. Day at the Races, I like. It's an enjoyable film, but there's that water ballet in it. They do that water ballet, and it seems to go yeah, on. The, the so Busby genius. Berkeley thing, yeah. Yeah, and it goes on forever. It broke up the comedy momentum. They're having this great film, and it just broke up the momentum, and I, I couldn't stand that part. It's like, I don't know if you're a Beatles fan, but hell, I am, I, yeah. yeah, my favorite all-time movie is Hard Day's Night. And then they did help the next year, which starts out great. You know, it's funny. And then there's this, there's this tedious part in the middle that for whatever reason, it just, it was, I'm like bored with the Beatles. It's like half hour and nothing really happens. I don't know. It's just, there was this tedious bit in the middle. Whereas hard day's night, it's funny all the way through. It works all the way through. Yeah, it was with, I think duck soup is probably still my favorite. Yeah. Um, duck, duck soup was Harpo's favorite. Yeah, a lot a lot of people consider some of those Paramount movies and even like the one thing about Coconuts and Animal Crackers is those are stage plays. 
and mm-hmm. they are acted as stage plays. Like, I mean, right. it is one shot, there's one camera there. And, mm-hmm. but if you take it for what it is, yes, I, I mean, they're, they're great movies and everything. It's just, I think those are like, when you get to, uh, to duck soup, I think that is an absolute. And that's why I think a lot of baby boomers resonated with mm-hmm. the anarchy, like the anarchy and the, you know, anti-establishment that uh, mm-hmm. Groucho was saying in a lot of those movies by the time you get to the 60s and the 70s. And that's why Groucho experienced this massive upheaval and in, uh, in, in uh, like uptick in popularity by the time. On college campuses, college campuses went crazy over him. He was like, yeah, the anti-establishment. And you know what's funny about Duck Soup? That's the one movie that there's no, no harp solo and no piano number. And I, you know, I always enjoy Chico's piano numbers. I'm not the harp numbers. I'm not crazy about, but I love Harpo. You know, just to see Harpo is a thrill. But that's totally. the one they, they cut the music out. I like my, my favorite good. Tony is I like horse feathers myself. I'm a horse feathers nut. To me, that horse, fe- horse feathers yeah, is my great. favorite Chico. Yeah, I, that's my favorite Groucho number. I always get my man and my favorite Chico piano number with Thelma Todd. Watch that closely, by the way. You can see that Tony on YouTube, the piano number with Chico and Thelma Todd, and watch Thelma's hands closely. She grabs them. You can see she slips her hand under and gives Chico a little pinch. Oh yeah, no, it's it. it you yeah. know, it's funny because I told you off the air that I have a cat named Eddie, but unfortunately not named Eddie D's, and I do have Why another cat. Eddie? What's that? Why did you name him Eddie? Uh, my wife is a big Ohio State fan, and there's a quarter or a running back who played for them named Eddie George, and so oh, okay. we so okay. we kind of kept it going. Although I do okay. have another cat named Harpo, and yes, it is named oh. after Harpo Marks. Very so, cool. I thought you were going to say one of my other heroes, Eddie Haskell. I thought you were going to say Eddie Haskell. No, I not love. not Eddie, not Eddie Haskell. Not yeah. uh, I. I could go down <laughs> down yeah, the whole list, is- but. The only Leave It to Beaver episodes I watch, I don't like the series, but anytime Eddie Haskell's on, I love it. He, it's the only episodes I like are the Eddie Haskell episodes. How was, uh, well, it's, uh, speaking of Eddie Haskell, I was watching uh, a, an, an SC, I love SCTV. I always mention right. it all the time. And right. there's a classic episode of SCTV that came out in maybe 76, 77, mm-hmm. where they did a Leave It to Beaver 25th anniversary, where mm-hmm. uh, Ward, Ward, played by Joe Flaherty, is a drunk and Right. <laughs> uh, June June Cleaver is uh, hooking up with uh, Mr. Rutherford down the street and going to Tijuana and yeah, Beaver's Mel been Coleman. on welfare and, right. and, and Wally's been on well. It is, is on, on I'd love to see it. So so Beaver is played by John Candy. So okay. that's my segue. And you had mentioned John Candy. What was it like to work around somebody like John Candy? Who was uh, like no pun intended a larger than life figure. I want to answer your question. Just to answer one question quick: Is Eddie Haskell in the sketch? Yes, Eddie Haskell is played by Dave Thomas. Okay, I want to see and, that. Thank and, you. And, okay. and Dave Thomas is Eddie Haskell, who is hitting on <laughs> Wally because Eddie Haskell's actually gay, and he's hitting <laughs> on Wally, who's played by Eugene Levy. <laughs> That's funny. John Candy was the sweetest guy in the world. I loved him. He was so nice. I didn't know who he was. I'd never seen SCTV at that time. I love John. Uh, he just couldn't have been nicer. I remember uh, my big moment with him was once I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard and he and his agent or his manager were there and we run into each other and we went into a Howard Johnson together. and We had ice cream together. and It was just a beautiful moment. And I remember his manager agent was a little rude. He was laughing at my voice. I go, da, 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 hi, da, da, da. And he goes, he goes, he talks that way and he's laughing. And John goes, you know, that's rude. Don't do that. He, he was a, just a man, real gentleman. I loved him. And uh, I remember after I did Polar Express, okay, we can talk about that. But I did Polar Express after I finished my last day. Tom Hanks goes, I hear you're a baseball fan, Eddie. And I go, yeah. He goes, do you want to come to a Dodger game with me? No, you, you're kidding, right? So he took me to three Dodger games. Anyway, I can get into that later. But I remember Tom No, no, this is a great, th- that's a great story. I love this story. Okay. But anyway, Tom was, one of the conversations I had, Tom Hanks was talking about John Candy. And I looked at him and he was almost crying. He literally had tears welling up in his eyes. He said, this was a very special man, blah, blah, blah. And he just, I thought he was going to cry, but he just loved John Candy. He knew him a lot better than me, but he was just a, a great guy. He's one of these guys everybody loved. Just total joy. Yeah. That's uh, it's it's amazing. And I mean, there's some people that, you know, you hear about Hollywood people and you hear about, you know, for, for those of us who are not in like any type of business. And I'm at the lowest of the lowest form of <laughs> the business of podcasting, comedy, uh, radio, whatever. You're interviewing but, me, so you might, can't get any lower than that. Well, I don't know. I mean, when you're when you're one of my bigger guests, that's <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, but but being around these people and you hear about these stories and you want to, you want to know that these people are great people. And it's, yeah. it, it's, it's so great to hear. And yeah, you know, I have a few it, jerk stories, a, a very few. I, I've always said, Tony, I go probably nine. I've met so many of the 
gigantic stars, celebrities, writers. I'd say 97% are the nicest people you could ever imagine. I was, I was going to say like that three about or four dicks, you know, there are a few dicks here and there, but Jerry, Jerry Lewis, far between Jerry Lewis was a dick. Yeah. He, talk he was, talk, talk about that story. Fair. Okay. I want to be fair. I have a lot of Jerry Lewis stories, but Jerry Lewis knew of me evidently. And now I'll tell you, this is the cool story. A guy on Facebook writes me, he said, I used to work on the Jerry Lewis telethon. And Jerry Lewis, he said, I was in the wings with Jerry before he was introduced one time and we were talking and he said, I love your stuff. And he said, he said to Jerry Lewis, he goes, you know, you're the funniest guy I've ever met outside of Eddie Deason. And Jerry Lewis <laughs> goes, you know, you're not the first person that's ever told me that, which knocked me out. Really? You know, Jerry Lewis could be aware of my existence. That story knocked me out. I'm like on Mount Everest, you know, it's through. I was so happy, but he obviously knew who I was. He once sent me a signed picture. Jerry's a friend of a writer's I know named Jim Nybauer, who's a great writer. And he, Jerry sent me a picture, dear Eddie to Eddie, my lookalike, love Jerry Lewis. So he was aware of my existence. And he, that was the nice moments. Anyway, I met him in per and I saw him in Las Vegas and he was so talented, just this wonderful, he did it part, Tony, he would take this cane and he threw it up like 30 feet in the air and he caught it behind his back. He sang, he joked, he played the trumpet. He was told stories it was just so him and sammy davis jr are the two most talented people i've ever seen in my life anyway because because well I, I, I want to stop you really quick because what's sure. interesting is how jerry lewis is such a generational thing like we had mentioned off the air about bob hope is right. that certain generations attach themselves to certain people but you go right. a couple of years later and they go i don't get it and yeah. when i was yeah. a kid i had seen jerry lewis but remember this is now jerry that we're now talking about Let's say the 1990s. We're talking about the Jerry who is 30 years past the, you know, the climbing up the, you know, the yeah. the, the, the curtain the at the of, Copa. Stevie and I just watched King of Comedy, and he he was that Jerry for like 30 or 40 years that we all know, you know, with the glasses and and the lozenge, yeah, and the lozenge, right? You know, the the slick back <laughs> hair. The Jerry that we that I love, you know, was about 10 or 15 years. Those are the Dean Martin years are my favorite. But it was remember, like, this guy was in showbiz forever. He had like a 60 year career. But it was right. like some people overstayed their welcome. And I thought with yeah. Jerry Lewis, it's not necessarily the, that he overstayed his welcome. It's just that I think for me is that my generation did not get him. They saw him yeah. on the telethon. He had that prednisone where he was on the steroids, where he just he looked like he had gills. And it yeah. just, it was really uncomfortable. And you're saying yeah. this guy. And then as you start to go back and you see how cartoonish he was at one time and how, yeah, how talented how you go, I yeah. get it now. So that's yeah. why certain generations will attach themselves and say, Jerry Lewis was a genius. And that's why the French think he was Chaplin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's similar to Bob Hope. Similar to Bob Hope, but if you look at Bob Hope's early films, this guy, he was all over. He was brilliant. You know, the best diction elocution. He'd say these long lines, da, 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 rattling them off. Brilliant. And he, he's pretty out there. He does some physical stuff. Great. And then, but the Bob Hope, again, we knew for 40 years as this guy comes out, you know, and he just stands there and tells these jokes. It wasn't the same Bob Hope. And he got older and older. He, you know, he went older than Jerry. Bob Hope was doing his specials every month. He was like 80 or something. 90. You know, and then finally, he was over yeah, 90. He was 90. And he was, and I talked to Tom Hanks about him when we go with the brief. When we, we were kids bob hope was bigger than the president he was like the most famous guy in america he was bigger than the president of the united states anyway i'll tell you a story about and i'll let you make a guess who has transcended time the best of all entertainers okay stevie and i were in a restaurant the other day we went to a deli called groucho's deli so i know i know of it yeah we love yeah we go to the marx brothers we love it all so we went to the waitress cute waitress i was kind of flirting go so do you like the marx brothers what's your favorite marx brothers films he goes i don't know who the marx brothers are you work at the Marx, but you know, we work at Groucho's Deli. You don't know. And there's pictures of the Marx. She didn't know. And she, I guess she never asked. She's more of a Richard Marx fan, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> but anyway, I go and I go, you don't know the Marx. I couldn't believe it. And I go, you do know the three stooges. And she goes, oh, yeah, sure. And so, okay, the three stooges transcend that. And then I went a step further last night. Same story. We were talking in kibitzing and we went to a Chinese restaurant and the Chinese lady named Emily, she's there. And we're talking, talking. And you won't believe this one. But we're talking about the Beatles. And I go, well, da, 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 da. I go, you know, the Beatles. And she goes, who's that? I go, you know who the Beatles are. And Steve and I had to ask like five or six times. He go, the Beatles, you know, the band. And Steve showed him a picture. We couldn't believe anybody on the planet Earth didn't know the Beatles. But she wasn't aware of the Beatles. And I go to her, do you know who the three students are? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah. So apparently of this generation, of all the old acts, all pop culture, I think the three students are the number one act. That's, that's what I believe from those two conversations. I think the three students are the one that's transcended everybody. You know, they're, now, they're kind of like Shakespeare, maybe Elvis would be one. Maybe I think everybody knows Elvis, but they're that level. I, I would say with Three Stooges, well, because it also it transcends, but it's also a very, as we've heard about a guy thing. 
It's like, I, you know, a lot I mean, of women so, go you know, watch I and just so shake many, their head. I know so many girls we sue just fans. On, on Facebook, there's a lot of girls we sue just fans. To me, Curly Howard's the greatest comedian that ever lived. He's, I think he's, a, I think he's as good as Chaplin, as good as Keaton. But he talks, remember. He said fun, he was a verbal comedian, too. He did it all. To me, he's the greatest comedian ever. He was, well, yeah, exactly. And you think about uh, after he had the stroke and then Shemp, yeah. who, by the way, a lot of people are like, oh, Shemp wasn't curly. It's like Shemp was in the act before. He was with Ted oh, yeah. Healy in his studio. Yes. He's, by the way, it's funny because I'm reading a biography of Ted Healy now. I was on Facebook, okay? And there was a post about Ted Healy, blah, blah. And I put a comment and I put, Ted Healy was a hack comic. Because I'd seen his MGM shorts with the Stooges. And I didn't think he was funny. So it happened that a writer wrote a book on Ted Healy and he answered my comment. He goes, Eddie, Ted Healy wasn't a hack comic, blah, blah. And he's a mensch. He mailed me the book actually to read. So I'm reading about Ted Healy now. But anyway, right, Shemp started the act. And by the way, Shemp was a very good comedian. Shemp's made, I'm not anti-Shemp. It's just he followed Curly. You know, it's like following Elvis. It's like, I'm going to play Elvis. Nobody can fill those shoes. But Shemp is funny in his own right. Yeah, it's like Dick Dick York and Dick Sargent, right? <laughs> yeah, I like Dick York. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and then and then you had Joe Besser. You bring Stinky in from the Abbott and Costello, and, yeah. and he didn't want to be hit. It's like you're he not going to hit. hit. Which Stevie and I were just talking about. Yeah, he didn't want to be, and you want to be a member of the Three Stooges. Kind of like I want to join the Beatles, but I don't want to sing. It's like what the fuck, you know? Oh, sorry, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you can like, curse. Yeah, you no, don't worry. So Larry apparently stood up, and Larry said, "I'll take your punches for you, Joe. I'll take the hits." And Larry, being a mensch, he stood up for Joe, and he took extra hits because Joe wouldn't be hit. Well, and and I understand why Mo wanted to keep the Stooges going. Obviously, with you know, you get Curly Joe, who you know they shaved his head, and they kept it going during the TV days. And a lot of people don't realize why they kept it going was cash cow, wasn't it? Well, by TV, TV, because Mo didn't realize they didn't make a lot of money when they were under Columbia Pictures. And by I think 1957 is when their contract ran up. Somebody actually told Mo, they said, "Do you realize how much you're worth?" Because the the production company, Columbia, they kept saying like, oh, I don't know, guys, I don't know if, how much we can pay you. So yeah. they had a very they were very self-conscious about what was going on at the time. And then until they realized that, no, you guys are the, one of the most popular acts of all time at, to exactly. that point around the world, around the world. And that's why then then they end up getting renegotiating contracts. And yeah. then it's the Scooby-Doo mysteries with the three stooges yeah. and yeah, Scooby-Doo and everything. And they were all a mad, yeah. mad, 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 mad world. Part. Yeah, Mad Mad World, they did a three-second camera, which was cute. You know, it's kind of, I, I went, as a kid, I, I saw that in New York, at Radio City Music Hall with the Rockettes. It was so electric. And I went to the movie, I'm going to see the three studios, and they were on for three seconds. I remember mm-hmm. that. It was the shortest cameo in movie history, I think. But just to see them was a thrill. I, I lit up. Where they were I the firemen, them. yeah. And yeah, they were well, the firemen, right. So, they didn't even so- do them lines. So by 1970, the Stooges, they're still going with Curly Joe. And then Larry has the debilitating stroke. He goes into yeah. the motion pictures home and yes. Mo wants to keep the keep the act going. And there's a photo that's out there right before Mo's stroke. It's Mo, Curly Joe and Emil Sitka, oh. who was going to replace Larry in the act. Oh. And okay. I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, you want to talk about people who overstay their welcome. Oof. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't want to see I- that. Well, Tony, you know how it is in show, but they'll milk the cash cow. They tell you Grease again. They made Grease 2, which was a mistake. I always, and some people prefer Grease 2 to Grease. I always go, the people that like Grease 2 better than Grease are the people who like The Wiz better than The Wizard of Oz. It's like, are you serious? This one is this beautiful juggernaut classic, and this other is a piece of crap, you know? But yeah, they, they, they like, like Jackie Mason over Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack 2. Yeah, it's like, what, <laughs> they're, they're, they're the people who go to a Beach Boys concert and yell out, sing Kokomo. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Mike Love? Yeah, but uh, but no, it, it's, By the way, it's some fascinating. Very nice people, some very nice people like Greece too. I'm not saying anything against it. It's just they're not. It's not in the same league as Greece. It, it, it's just you know. But again, every, it's all subjective. With aesthetics, art, it's all subjective. Some people out there, I'm sure, like the Sex Pistols better than the Beatles. And in their universe, it's better. You know, some like men, some like women. You know, Steve Allen said, Steve Allen said, taste in comedy is like taste in colors, cars, or women. And, it, and, you know, it's all subjective and that's the way it is. I've, you know, some people I watch three stooges, I'll be rolling on the floor and they'll be sitting straight face to watch three stooges. My mom was an angel and she loved the three stooges, but my mom hated Jerry Lewis. And I'd be watching Jerry Lewis and mom sitting stone face or she'd fall asleep, you know, and I'm going, mom, this genius is on it. You don't know what, but she just didn't like Jerry Lewis. My ex-wife didn't like Jerry Lewis. Yeah. There, there's some people who just don't get it. I, yeah, I people, you know, he's, it, it, yeah, he's like two factions. You either love Jerry Lewis or hate him. I was at um, uh, it was about gosh maybe about eight years ago and I was in Pittsburgh 
and I went to go see Gilbert Gottfried. And I know you were oh. on Gilbert's podcast about five years yes. ago, which was a great I appearance. Him. I encourage yes. everybody to go check that out. And of course, we lost Gilbert last year. Yes. And uh, so in 2022, I went I was in New York and I had a chance to meet a bunch of people. I met Richard Kind. I met John Davidson. I met uh, Jason Alexander at the oh. Gilbert Gottfried Memorial. Okay. And so I got a chance to talk to Dara, his wife. And I said, one of the one of my favorite memories was going to see Gilbert at the Pittsburgh Improv, a place that I've performed at and watching Gilbert on stage and the couple that's next to me. And it was I think it was a boyfriend, girlfriend. And Gilbert's on stage doing jokes about Ben Gazzara. He's doing jokes about Hervé Villachez. He's mm. doing impressions of Groucho and Marlon Brando and everybody. Right. And the boyfriend who's next to me is on the floor laughing. And the <laughs> girlfriend is sitting in the chair going, what is this? Yeah. yeah. What am I watching right now? Right. And that was right. funnier than anything that I saw on stage yeah. because <laughs> sometimes there are certain comedians or certain acts, like you said about Jerry Lewis, that you get and yeah. it's almost makes it more fun that you get it because it's like you're a part of a secret club. Like, yeah. oh, we're a part of this cult while everybody yeah. else, like, they don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been to a movie like that? I've been to movies like that where the crowd is warm with laughing. This isn't friggin' funny. You know, I just haven't, everybody's laughing, but you, or you the find hangover, it very the hangover for me. Yeah, really. Even in like some films, I will be the only one there and I'll be laughing and yeah, nobody else laughs. It's, a, it, it's so funny, but, uh, By the way, you know, I just glimpsed, I just glimpsed Eddie. Oh, no. That, yeah, that was Harpo that walked by. That was Harpo. Okay. Yeah, Eddie's Eddie's somewhere around here. Yeah, Harpo okay. wanted to say hi. Uh, okay. So hi, you're, you're a big Beatles fan. Yes. And I'm somebody that I grew up with the Beatles and, you know, some of their stuff, the early, the mop head stuff is like, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, that's fine. And it really was, it, it, it truly seemed like they were a band that did things. This could just, just my opinion, but this could be a fact. I don't know. But it seemed like the Beatles were a band that did things to get popular. And then when they achieved that level of popularity, they're like, OK, now it's time to do what we wanted to do in the first mm -hmm. place. That's a good and, analysis. Because so there's analysis. there's that uh, I, I had this that two CD set where it was the early years and the later years. I mm -hmm. never put on the early years. I only put on the later years. I hear you like the later years. Okay. When they grew the, the mustaches, they grew the hair out. They went to India. They're hanging out with Ravi Shankar. Right. That's the Beatles I preferred because you could tell the musical, the diversity that they had as mm -hmm. opposed to, hey, let's just make the girls and the uh, the malt shops happy. It's like, no, right. we're going to do the music we like. What's uh, you're somebody you're a connoisseur. I was going to look up. I told Steve I was going to look up uh, all these Beatles facts. And he's like, don't even bother. Eddie knows them all. <laughs> yeah, I pretty much I'm a Beatles expert. I've read like six or seven. This is last count. This is about 10 years ago. But I've read six or seven hundred books on Beatles. I probably read over a thousand books on Beatles. I'm not kidding you. I just I, I registered an encyclopedia. Uh, what you say is very sage. You're probably right, especially John and George to an extent. I'll disagree with it to the extent that I think Paul liked the glamour stuff. The Beatles were these, I don't know if you know their history, but they were in Hamburg. They started in Hamburg, Germany. Yep. And they were these tough guys in leather outfits, you know. When the Beatles came to America in 64, okay, there were a lot of jokes that these guys are pansies, you know, they're a bunch of sissies, they have long hair, they look like girls. They were tough guys. They were in the streets of Hamburg and they performed there for like a year. And they, this was, they performed like eight hours a night. They were taking prellies, these things that kept them up all night. And these were thugs, you know, in the audience. There was a guy trying to get on the stage once and John Lennon literally kicked them. He literally kicked them off. John Lennon once had a beer can, beer bottle, and he opened it with his teeth. They would get into fights there, you know, and they were taking drugs, going to whorehouses, you know. These were really tough, gritty guys. So then when they came, when they hired Brian Epstein as their manager, he was a gay guy. And he was I'm nothing homophobic, but he liked dressing him up. He put him into these outfits and they combed down their hair and he made more theatrical. He was a theatrical type guy. And I think Paul liked that. Paul liked the theatrical, Paul liked that kind of theatrical thing. But John did, John always hated, John was always jealous of the Rolling Stones because they were always looked on as bad boys, you know, and he wanted the Beatles to be bad boys. So John kind of swallowed it for a couple of years and then he got, you know, weirder and weirder. And then by the end, he's pretty freaked out. Well, and then when you look at what their solo stuff, when they break up in 1970, it, right. it, you have, you, they kind of continued that. They kind of continued yeah. where they were going when they were yes. splitting. It was yes. John had right. more of his experimental stuff. You had he went freaky with Yoko. Yeah, exactly. And then stuff. and then George had you know my sweet lord that came out not long right. after it. But George then wins. Kind of 
Wings was the most uh, mainstream of all yeah, of them. Wings were, were kind of like little watered down Beatles. They were like a poppy pop group. Yeah. And Ringo has goes, how I look at it, Tony, is after they split, they all had some great songs and that like about a six or seven year period. They all had some great class songs. And then they started taper out and they all went, got washed down. John, you know, John lasted the shortest, of course, and his last album was good. But after like maybe like 80 or so, their songs weren't as good. Paul's last good stuff was like mid 80s, I think. The last three years, he hasn't really done anything right, in my opinion. George's later stuff wasn't that good. And Ringo's later stuff wasn't that good. They kind of kept the momentum the Beatles going for five or six years. And then it kind of tapered out. Yeah, when when I heard Got My Mind Set on You, and I'm like, wait, yeah. who does that? They said, that's George Harrison. I'm like, yeah. no, come yeah. on. That's yeah. not George Harrison. They're like, <laughs> well, George, yeah. somebody need to pay a couple of bills here. <laughs> Yeah, that was a song the Beatles used to play in the cavern. They used to play in a club called Cavern in their Liverpool days before they were famous. When the electricity went out, they would play that song to entertain you. The lights would go out. It was such a cheap club and it had it had no insulation. And the sweat would short the light so it was dark. And they would sing, I got your mind set on you to entertain the fans between sets. Between oh, I songs. didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know it dated George, that this, long. Yeah, it's an old song. It's not a Lennon-McCartney song. It's just an old song the Beatles used to play and George just adapted it. And then, of course, by the time you get to the late 80s and then Tom Petty takes it takes hold and he brings mm-hmm. Jeff Lynn in and Jeff Lynn yeah. has uh, Ringo and he has George Harrison to uh, right. the, the you know, bring, Yeah, which which, you know, is it's not bad, but uh, yeah. it, it's the the transition, of course, of of the band. And you, you but it's so funny how, again, you hear all those different sounds and you think by the time the 80s start, you're like, Maybe if they like combined all four of those guys sounds, it would sound like the Beatles. <laughs> it's yeah, like really. it just it was perfect. It would have been a perfect marriage. But uh, yeah, maybe so. So uh, speaking of voices, I wanted to play a couple of things. So people who might sure. be listening that are a little bit younger may not have seen you in 1941, may not have seen you and I want to hold your hand, but they may have heard your voice, too. Mm-hmm. I want to play a little bit because this is where oh. I was truly introduced to the work of Eddie Deason back in the day. Oh, OK, yeah. What a part that was for you. Yes, I did 20 episodes of Dexter's Laboratory. I was a recurring character. The greatest animation director in history, her name was Colette Sunderman. She directed Dexter's Laboratory. She's marvelous. She's, I can't say enough about her. There was a lovely girl named Christine Cavanaugh who sadly died very young. She yep. did Dexter's voice. And then Candy Milo took over. She was great too, but uh, totally happy experience. I love Jeff Bennett, who did uh, Johnny Bravo at Cartoon Network. He was the mm-hmm. father. And Kit... Uh, Kids who say was the mother. It's just, I love doing Dexter's Laboratory. It's, it's one of those shows you give away the secret in show because it's like doing Polar Express or Grease or War Games. Some of these movies are so happy. You would have paid them. You know how that is, Tony. It's like they're hiring you, but you, you're so happy. You you would paying is such gravy. I would have paid them to do those experiences, to have those experiences. Because you you have been kind of admitted over time that you had had a little bit of stage fright, especially performing in front of live audiences. That yeah, and, I, and I have a very hard time memorizing lines. It's very hard for me. So when you're in a studio, when they say, hey, we got studio time, you want to come in for Dexter's lab. And then you're like, yeah, we're going to do Mandark. It's perfect for you. Exactly. And you do your line and you flub and nobody cares. Voiceovers, first of all, you don't have to memorize. You're reading everything off a paper. It's a piece of cake. (laughs) And if you screw up, so what? Take two, take three, take four. No big deal. In the movies, they don't like when I did war games, my war game story is I kept screwing up. I had the one scene in war games. Did you see war games? Uh, years ago again, yes. Okay, I, I have the one scene. I was the first computer nerd, and I kept screwing up the, the phrase data encryption algorithm. I screwed <laughs> it up. I go data endocrine algorithm, data endocrine algorithm, and I screwed up seven or eight takes. And the producer puts his arm on my shoulder. He goes, Eddie, let's go for a walk. So he goes, look, you're costing the studio a lot of money. We're going to get you these idiot cards and you're going to read your lines off there. So he wrote it down, data encryption algorithm. And I read it, and we did it in one take. And that's the take you'll see if you see me in war games. But yeah, with movies, when you do them too, you're amongst friends. It's like you're. It's like me with Tony. I'm gonna do, hang out with Tony. Talk. We're both very relaxed. When yeah. you're doing stand up, you're with you know 200 strangers and all. It's it's a little bit of a scary experience. It gets easier. I noticed doing stand up and when I perform for live audience, once you get going, it's easy. But before it, I'm very nervous. But once you get started, you know, the first couple of jokes, I feel relaxed. I did you know nine pilots and I had to do the pilots in front of an audience. And I always notice I do my first couple lines. I was scared and I did this terrible show called Punky Brewster. But you do the lines and I want it's actually fun once you feel good with the audience. But it takes me a while to get into that. 
Yeah, you were in the first season of Punky Brewster, right? First season, I did eight episodes. Yeah. Do you work with Bill Bixby, right? Oh wait, no. no I worked with oh, wait, what, what? No, no. I was thinking of Blossom. My my mistake. Bill Bill okay, Bixby yeah. was Bill Bixby, wrong. Wrong, wrong uh, teen or t- yeah. <laughs> t- TV Bill show Bixby, for. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember that for back when I was a kid. I loved My Favorite Martian. He, I knew Bill from My Favorite Martian. I loved that show when I was a kid. But no, I never yeah, got I, to meet him work with him. Yeah, because I, I confused I confused Punky Brewster with uh, Blossom, and there were two okay. shows where you had the female protagonist there. And, right. Uh, right. But uh, no, but like you made that transition pretty easily in the '80s to like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to start doing some voice work, and you do have a yeah. very distinct voice, and it oh, worked you. out. And you've yeah. also used some of your comedic chops for parts like this. Another one of my favorites. So this part, by the way, which is in the show Duckman, a, a Gabor Chupo show. Yeah. Right. Iggy and Catalpa. you you played Iggy Catalpa, who was a right. politically correct comedian, which I think would be probably pretty successful nowadays <laughs> based on how yes. things are going. But yes. it's it, it was such a funny part because this show, again, is the one of the most absurd but well-written shows of all time, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. That was a Jason Alexander, right? Yes. Yes, he was wonderful. Super great guy. I love Jason. Fun to work. Every time I did that show, I loved it. Very happy times. Yeah. And a lot of great voice actors on that show. Not only just Jason yeah. Alexander, but Greg Berger was on there. I think Cat uh, Soyce and a, a lot yes. of others that wanted yeah. that that loved. It. Like if you knew animation, especially in the golden age that came out of the uh, late '80s, early '90s that popped mm-hmm. up. That Duckman was one of those shows that it is. I, I'll still watch it to this day. I will laugh, and I'm like. This is so well written. Why was this show not bigger? Why was this show yeah. not on regular television instead of USA yeah. Network? And you yeah. played such a great pivotal role in that show. That's like a oh, huge you. plot point. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. We were voiceovers when I first came to Hollywood. My friend would always tell me voiceovers are the toughest field as part of showbiz to break into. Tough, you know, stand up. Anybody. When I started stand up, they had at the comedy store in Hollywood. It was potluck night, and anybody could just go on stage. You just register your name. So it was very open. Uh, you know, getting into movies and TV, of course, is hard. But voiceovers was an insular community. There were like a few hundred that control. And you notice the cartoons when we were kids, it was pretty much the same voice doing the same Hal- thing. Hal Everybody, Smith. handled everything at Warner Brothers, you know. And there were June Foray. And there was just this little community. But there then was, uh, Pat later, Buttram did a bunch of voices Pat back Buttram, in the day. Yeah. And um, there was the guy, Frank Nelson, you know. Yes. Yes. That guy, you know, he, yeah, yeah. There were oh, yes. guys that did all the voiceovers. <laughs> and but later people started they started realizing how easy work it is you know you go voiceover you know a movie you got to get shaved and groomed and made up look good put on underarm deodorant and you know really see people and you're there for nine or ten hours every day eight or nine hours voiceovers you can go in scraggly with a beard nobody cares you come in with your glasses and scraggly and you, you're there for an hour or two you know and you read some lines it's just so easy and the celebrities started really wait a minute this is easy you know so pe- people started gravitating getting into it and voiceover agency started up and they started going and i signed with icm which was the best voiceover agency jeff danis was a brilliant agent the best agent ever i was with him for 22 years and he, they just got me a lot of jobs and he got me polar express you know well bob zemeckis wrote me into polar express but jeff made the deal you know to get me into polar express well, Polar Express is obviously it's it, it was a movie. It was a book that I had read. I think it was a Calder uh, uh, like award winner back in the day. And I remembered it wasn't so much the the writing that was in the book. It was the uh, the animation and like what mm-hmm. drawing. And I, that's what I was drawn to when I was a kid. No pun intended. Right. And when I saw that it was making into a, a full length movie. And of course, you're a huge part in it. And I mean. You really are. You really are all over the place. And you just start to find like different seeds in my life of what I grew up with, what I consumed. Eddie Deason's like a part of a lot of this here as as I've played Dexter's Lab, you know, and, and I'm looking at the background now that you've been on Kim Possible, Sesame Street, Scooby Doo, all of that. You're just yeah. all over the place. Zapped with Scott Bayo. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. But you've you you've been around and you're still active. I saw I think I saw a picture of you recently. You were doing some voice acting. 
I did, well, I did a, an on-camera, Stevie and I did it, but we green screened it because they're in, this guy's in, I think he's in Florida or whatever, but Stevie and I green screened this thing for uh, Critters 4. I did Critters 2 in 1988. They're doing a Critters 4. This is my misbrush with fate. I did Critters 2, okay? I started, that's relatively straight role for me, but I turned into a Playboy centerfold in that movie. I morph into one. It's, <laughs> I'm this guy, tell more fights and I morph into one. So that's weird. Critters 3 was the next one. I wasn't in that. It was the film debut of another actor. His name is Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio's oh, I never, never heard of him. Yeah, yeah, it was direct-to-video t- turkey, you know, but I miss working with DiCaprio by this much. And now I'm in Critters 4, so I, I work before and after Leonardo DiCaprio in that series. Somehow I don't think DiCaprio's going to be in Critters 4. Yeah, you all, you were saying about how like, back in the day where you were going to a studio and you didn't have to worry about shaving or anything. It's probably no. even better now that you could do it better, from yeah, home. Yeah, you do it from home. Stevie and I, when we get an audition, now this, this super nice lady named Diane, she's a lovely lady. She'll record us. It's in Greenville, which is not that far away. And we ride over and she has this beautiful little studio and we record there. So I've done a, you know, I just started back and we have my old agent, Dean, Dean Pinero, my old agent handles me again. So I'm hoping I can get some voiceover jobs. I auditioned for a Nickelodeon film about uh, 10 days ago, a Nickelodeon project, but it doesn't look like I got it. But I, I, I thought I gave a good audition, but you never know. But if, but, but if you close your eyes and you hear Eddie Deason in 2023 on the Check Your Brain podcast and you hear Eddie Deason in 1978 in Greece, it's the same voice. Like there's oh. not <laughs> like like you're not like Elton John where you went from, you know, <laughs> crocodile rock up here to i i'm a baritone right now i can't hit those notes anymore it's the same voice i mean you yeah. you've been able to take care of your voice i mean you're not a you're not a smoker you're not a heavy drinker no. you're not any of that so you're able to take care of your voice over time and by the way yeah. if anybody wants to hear a little bit more of eddie's voice you can go to cameo at cameo.com slash eddie d's and, and go buy a cameo if you know somebody who is interested in going uh like whether again for birthdays for anniversaries for bar mitzvahs, graduations, Christmas presents, Hanukkah, whatever it is, go to cameo.com slash Eddie D's and you get Eugene or whatever you enjoyed him in, all the things that we have mentioned here on this podcast, he can do that for you and just go there and you get a cameo from him. Thank you, Tony. Well, Eddie, hey, great. Th- it was great talking to you. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing this podcast. I can't wait to put it out and, uh, uh, good luck with everything. I can't wait to stay in touch. I enjoy. And by the way, for unless there's a limit on Facebook, you are a great Facebook follow. Oh, like you post you. so much content and it, it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and writing it, jokes is my joy. I, Tony, I would just lay down in bed and I just, okay, I'm going to write a joke. And I loved, I, since I was a little kid, I loved doing it. And Facebook, I get an audience for it. Would yeah, you ever I, do stand up again? No, I, no, no you're, I, I don't need the money and I didn't enjoy it, you know. You didn't enjoy it. Oh, I didn't enjoy yeah. it. So yeah, I'm I'm very happy here doing what I'm doing. I, I Stevie and I want to get back into films. That's our goal. And we're gonna start doing comic cons and signing shows again. But Stevie well, says it, I gotta go. Yeah, and I and I think you have a comic con coming up, but again, go to uh, cameo.com slash Eddie D's and if you want a cameo and go follow him and see where uh where you can go see him. I know you have uh Steve told me that there's a couple of uh, comic cons that are coming up in the near future that uh yeah. and, and one of these days I'm gonna head on down to the uh to your neck of the woods. I'm not gonna say where, but your neck of the woods and um, have some lunch. Maybe you'll go to Groucho's, have a sandwich. I'd love to. Steve and I would love to see you. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Tony. And you do, I, I'm not just saying this to flatter you, I swear to God, you do the best John Travolta impression I've ever heard in my life. Well, thank that's, you. Thank, you. thank you so much. That's, hey, yeah, that's hey, dead yeah. on. Hey, yeah. I can do an old, I'm a reaction. I can do the, I can do a Jimmy Cagney. I can do a Clark Gable. You know, we don't have time here, but I, I do a couple, but you're, that's a great John Travolta. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, yeah. 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 So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get together soon. I'm looking forward to it. And, and and thanks everybody for listening to this week's edition of the check your brain podcast. If you like what you heard, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur. And I'm on rumble, YouTube, all the other places. And just subscribe to me, a free podcast coming out every week for you. My name is Tony Mazur. Thank you for listening to this week's check your brain podcast. We'll be back with you next week.